All right, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew 13, um, if you don't have a Bible, don't be shy. Get your hand in the air. We have free Bibles for you, okay? If you don't own a Bible, you do now. This is our free gift to you. Don't, again, come on, put them up if you need a Bible. If we want you to follow along in the Word uh, as we go through the text and then open up to Matthew 13. If you just forgot yours today, take one and then leave it on the way out. Matthew 13, start turning. Okay. Um, I want to answer a question uh, that some people asked me this week, and it, it's, in some ways it's my apologies for not bringing it up last week. Uh, a couple people have been asking, are we done with Romans? Okay, because if you have been around for a while, we've been in Romans for over a year now, and we just wrapped up chapter 9, um, which leads a handful of chapters still left. And so, no, we're not finished with Romans. Okay, we're taking a nine-week break from the book of Romans, um, and so we're doing four weeks in this series that we're in now called uh, Pictures of the Kingdom, where we look at Matthew chapter 13 and look at these four different parables from the, uh, about the kingdom of God that Jesus gives to the crowd, okay? Um, then we're going to do a five-week series called Bless uh, over kind of May and June that is kind of a, a how do we bless the city, how do we bless each other, how do we bless God, and do it in kind of different ways, pretty practical and things like that. So um, even if you are a student and you're going away for the summer, but you're going to be back, uh, I think uh, the, really these next two series, especially the Bless one, is going to be pretty formative for us as a church. And so I'd encourage you to kind of uh, listen to the podcast, check in on those moments. We're going to do some things uh, with the website that's going to hopefully make that a little more user-friendly for you. Um, and so go ahead and do that this summer. But anyway, uh, we're in week two of this four-week series called Pictures of the Kingdom. Um, and so now what we're doing today is looking at the second parable that Jesus gives us in Matthew 13. So last week we looked at the parable of the sower. Um, this, week, this week we looked at the parable of the weeds. And this parable is not quite as popular as the last one, okay? Um, a lot of people know the sower one. It's not quite as controversial. Uh, there's just a lot of people who jump into this parable today, and, and because, and we'll get into it, because of, I think, of some of, of, of what we've been raised up in, we have a lot of pushback towards something of what this communicates. And so it's going to be um, a call for us to push forward and engage uh, and not try and just say, okay, well, I already know this, uh, or I already disagree with this, or, or whatever that is. But at a foundational level, last week we said that let's not overthink the kingdom of God, because there's no way in four weeks we're going to be able to get the whole thing anyway. Let's try and keep it basic on a foundational level and then allow the the four parables to just kind of refine some of those thoughts. Um, we said this. We said that every kingdom really has four things. Every kingdom has a king, and, and the kingdom of God has Jesus, right? He is our king. Um, every kingdom has a law, and our kingdom, the kingdom of God, has God's word, has the Bible, has his ethic, okay? Every kingdom in this world has a land or a place, and the kingdom of God has a place. It just happens to be all of God's creation, knowing no border, okay? And then every kingdom of this world has a citizenry or a populace or a people, and the kingdom of God has that, and it's the church, okay? And so we saw this is what a kingdom looks like. Let's not overthink it. It's just like, in many ways, a king of the world, but way better, okay? Because God's the king, God's established, God's done these things, and so we are part of that for those who know Jesus. Now, um, here's what's great about what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 13, is he's transitioning the way he's communicating with the people of his day because he used to be pretty direct. As you look at really Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 12, he's pretty direct, and then he makes this transition in chapter 13 towards parables or stories. 
he employs story to help communicate the depth and the breadth of the kingdom of God. Now, story, more than we will ever realize, is, is crazy important for us. Every movie that you really like, every TV show that you really, really like, is because there was a great story that was driving it. If you go back and you look, you'll find all the great pieces of story you'll find in every show, every television, every book that you've ever read. It's all in there. The power of story is very evident. I started thinking about it this week, about this, this idea of man, how powerful for Jesus to communicate in a way to reach the audience and doing it through story. And so I thought about, uh, I thought about my mom, and it's cute. Um, my mom is, is Vietnamese, okay? Uh, so she, and so... To dispel any rumors, I'm not Hispanic, okay? Um, in fact, at our men's thing, at our men's event last week, someone was reading a gospel track, and it was in Spanish, and they couldn't read it, and another guy goes, oh, give it to Vince, he can read it. <laughs> no, I can't, okay? Um, so I'm Asian, or at least half, okay? And so my mom is from Saigon, born and raised in South Vietnam, was there during the war, met my father during the war, and then immigrated to America, right? Right at the end of the war. And if you ever have time, I will tell you, the, I mean, this is Nicholas Sparks type love story stuff with me and my parents. I'm telling you, I'm gonna try and write it. It's gonna be amazing, okay? But anyway, my mom comes to America and um, two things that I started to think about this week as I thought about my mom's story and her immigration to America. One is, man, if you read and study history, you have some idea of the Vietnam War, right? We know about some of the guerrilla tactics of the Viet Cong. We know some dates. We know some of the other things that were going on at the time. Um, but man, until you can hear some of the stories Right, the stuff that's kind of behind all of the bullet points in your textbook, you don't really know all that much about what was happening there. Right? But, but the second I got to sit down with my mom and say, okay, what was life like? What was that transition like to America? What was your, what was your psyche? What was your, I mean, all of that, man, it opened up my eyes to really what that whole environment was like. That was the first thing. So as Jesus teaches this way, it opens up our, our eyes in ways that we would not understand the kingdom of God had he just given us a bullet point, this is what it looks like. And so he goes to the story. The, the second thing that I was thinking about is my mom, as she came in, I asked her, how'd you learn English, right? And there, there were two main ways. One was Scrabble, okay? And how many people ever played Scrabble, okay? Wow, all right. Um, so she, she, that's how she helped, helped herself learn English was by playing Scrabble. I remember the first time I beat her, I mean, I, was, I mean, it was elation because she was so good at it. But the second thing that she did to learn English uh, was watch I Dream of Jeannie over and over again, right? And so that might be before some of you. It's probably before most of you. Uh, I think it's even before me. What's that show? Like 70-something. And so that's before me too. But listen, that, so she would watch I Dream of Jeannie over and over and over. And so she learned English and she could teleport. It was unbelievable. And so, um, so she watches this show. And here's the thing. She was so enamored with the story of this TV show that it caused an engagement that allowed her to learn at a much more rapid pace than she would have if she was just looking at a textbook. 
Like she would say, man, I just was able to, I heard conversations, I understood the storylines, it made emotion real, I understand when to use certain words. So story is so powerful, and it's amazing that Jesus is smart, and well, not amazing that he's smart enough, he's God, but that he would do this for us, he would make this turn and say, okay, I love my creation, and I want that to be paramount in the sermon today. He loves you, he loves his creation, and wants them back. And so he preaches and teaches in any possible way. Like we said last week, that those who are hurting and far away from him would come near and be healed. Okay. That those far away and who are hurting would come near and be healed. That's his desire. And he employs this. Okay. So let's look at the second parable, the parable of the weeds starting in verse 24, and here's, here's what Jesus does. He, he shares the parable, and then he doesn't give an explanation, and then he leaves the apostles and the disciples and the followers scratching their heads, and then he comes back later and explains it. And so we're going to move pretty quick through the story, and we'll come back and look at how Jesus explains. So verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, okay, this farmer, this master, goes out, sows good seed in his field, okay? While that's happening, his servants, his people, his workers are taking a, are taking a nap, okay? Or as my wife would say, they're having a doze, right? They're having a doze. They're taking a nap. They're sleeping on those little kindergarten mats, right outside the farm, okay? And so they're there, they sleep, and then what happens is an enemy farmer, right, a rival farmer comes over and plants bad seed in the garden, in the field, okay? So now keep going, verse 26. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Okay, so after they've been sown, they both begin to grow. Okay, they both begin to grow up. So the men, the servants who wake up from their nap, come to the master and say, what happened? Did you not sow good seed? Should, why, where are the weeds coming from? And the master, being smart, being knowing, says, no, an enemy did that. Don't go and harvest now, but wait. Okay. Wait until the proper time. It is not yet time for that, so don't go. Because if you do, you're going to ruin the wheat also. Okay? You'll ruin the good seed along with the bad. Verse 29. But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So they grow up together. They're separated now at the time of the harvest. They take the wheat. They put the wheat in the barn. And then they take all of the weeds. They bundle them together. And they throw them into the furnace to be burned. Okay. This is the parable. Now, I begin to think about, and I try and do this, and I encourage you to do this as you read the Bible, because it's going to make the Bible, I think, more real for you instead of just, hey, this happened 2,000 years ago. Okay, it's step into the scripture, try in any sense to put yourself into the Bible and say, okay, man, what would it have been like for the first hearers of that parable? Okay, 
They, they, they just, they're, they're asking, they're learning, they want to know about the kingdom of God, and then Jesus gives them kind of this weird story about this farmer and this enemy and then weeds and, and, and wheat. And so um, I wonder, or I wondered this week as I kind of began to think about, well, what would they have been doing? And I thought they would probably do what we do, which is lie that we know what's going on, Right? Like, how many times have you, I know I have, you sit in a conversation, and it's, okay, it's with someone who knows a ton about sports, and so they're like, oh, man, did you see that play, or did you see when he did this? Did you hear about this? You're like, oh, yeah, man, that's amazing, right? And they're talking about football, and you said something about pitching. I mean, it's just, there's, a, you know, you don't know really, or, or you're sitting down with a professor, or you're sitting down with someone who knows more than you do, and then you lie about an author you know, or you, whatever that may be. There's a, um, just a brilliant, brilliant YouTube clip from Jimmy Kimmel uh, when he goes to Coachella. Has anyone ever seen this clip? Uh, so Coachella is a music festival that happens out in uh, Indio, California, that area. And uh, really? Yeah. All right. Um, so anyway, this is your people right here. Uh, so he goes out and he does this thing where he goes and he wants to interview these attenders of, uh, of, of Coachella. And there's obviously this big thing where you want to be the first to know about a band, right? If, and you don't know their new song, you're not really cool, and so you got to lie about it. And so he goes out and he interviews all of these people attending Coachella and asks them how they feel about these bands, but he's made every single band up. Right? Like every single band that he's, that he's, hey, what do you feel about this person? What do you feel? Um, none of them are real. Okay? And so I, I, just some of the names. And they were, there's the, uh, the Chelsea Clintons. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, Dr. Shlomo and the GI Clinic. Uh, a couple of my favorite. There was Shorty Jizzle and the Plumber Crunks. And then there was Get the F Out of My Pool. Okay? I mean, these were, but with the real word. And so these were, and here's what happens. Every single time, they're like, oh my, I love them. Can't wait to see them. They're going to be amazing. Or, you know what, I've never seen them live, but I listen to them on the radio all the time. Or there's another guy, oh yeah, I used to be a DJ. I used to spin them all the time. Oh, really? <laughs> Fool, right? <laughs> that is the nature and the proclivity of our hearts is to say, okay, no, we know. We're in. We're in. Here's the turning point for us right now in this parable and in this moment here on this Sunday. We often come to Sunday service, and, I, and listen, and I do too, even when I prep sermons, sometimes I'll, I'll come to the text and say, you know what, I already know what this is saying. I, I already know what the implications of this are, or I already have some preconceived ideas about what God's trying to communicate, and so I put myself onto the text instead of letting the text read me. And so what I want us to do is the same thing that we see the disciples do in verse 36 here is that they go to Jesus and say, what was that all about? What, man, you know what? Like, I, I'm not going to be too proud to listen. I won't be too proud to learn. I'm not going to be too proud to show up on a Sunday and say, I don't know everything. And allow Scripture and the Bible and Jesus to continually redefine what the truth is about the kingdom of God. Okay. And that's, that's my desire as we move through this because some of this is just going to be a bit hard. Okay, Verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. 
Oh, and if, if you're following the Bible, he skips down. There's two parables in between um, the, the telling of the parable and the explanation, okay? So if you're trying to find it, verse 36 is where we're at, or now 37. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, okay? So let's go kind of old school, uh, elementary textbook. I mean, I haven't been in school, so I don't know if they still do this, but um, kind of, they, they, remember they used to bold the keywords, so you'd have to flip through the chapter, and there'd be all the keywords, and you have to bold them and then define them. Let's do that now. The first one, the master sower is the son of man. It's Jesus, okay? So if we miss that one, right? So the sower, the good sower, the good farmer, the master is Jesus. The next one, the field. The field is all of the world, all of earth, all of God's creation. The good seed or the grain or the wheat is the sons of the kingdom. It's Christians. It's people who know, love Jesus, are part of his family, adopted in. Okay, Christians. The bad seed or the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Okay, and this is going to be harsh. These are people who don't know Jesus. And, and, and that's the one where, and, and listen, there, there's, I'm guessing, because there is every week, there's some of you here that you don't, you don't love Jesus. And, and we're reading this thing, and you have this guy who many of us worship as the Savior of the world saying, I mean, you're son of, an e- of the evil one. You're a son of the devil. You're outside. Let me do my best to communicate. And again, this is why I said earlier that we have to see that the overarching theme of this is Come and be healed. Come near. I love you. He loves his creation. Come near. Be with me. Okay. But he uses harsh language here. And the truth is, is that what we see here in the text is that most of the people that he's probably talking here are disciples. But I wonder how many people may be in the crowd that aren't. Or, or how much as he teaches these people, they would go and teach others and say, okay, this is the reality. And so Jesus said this. And, and that's something we have to wrestle with today. Jesus said this, that there are realities, that there are the sons of God and they're sons of the devil. The sons of God know, trust, love, and place their faith in Christ. And those that don't are over here. Okay. And he uses this harsh language, and the question has to be, why? Why, why so intense? Why not? Where's the... Where's the love? Where's the grace? Where's, the, where's all that stuff? Where's the kind of that, you know, real hippie, I love Jesus, my homeboy guy that would never say something like that? It's maybe because that's not really who he is. Uh, that, that oftentimes we've allowed our desires and our culture to shape Jesus instead of letting Jesus shape our culture. And so he creates and shows us these are two realities of the world that we're in but I think he's this harsh with the language. Sons of the evil one. Because of his love for his creation. Because he longs, okay, those who are far, come near. Those who are hurting, come and be healed. Okay, it's all over the place. Okay, next one. The next one is the enemy, and uh, that's the devil, Satan. 
Okay, and if you remember last week's parable, we saw that when the seed, right, the gospel would, would fall on the path. Remember last week in the parable? When it fell on the path, what did Satan do? Satan came up, swept that seed away, right? Hockey shot, slapped it away. No more seed, no more gospel, no more word to penetrate the heart of the person who should receive it. And now we see him take an even more aggressive, active role in the sowing of evil in this world. The sowing of evil in this world. The next one is the harvest, okay? It talks about the harvest. This is the end of the age, okay? This is Armageddon. It's the end times. It's when Jesus comes back again. It's all of that. That is the harvest in the parable. And the last one is the reapers, and Jesus tells them that the reapers are his angels, right? His people who at the end of time will come back, and they will carry this out. I got five implications just from this. Okay, so if we plug back in our key terms back into the parable, okay, we take everything Jesus explained. This, this is who this is. This is who this is. We take all those key terms, put them back into the parable. We come up with five implications. Okay, if you're a note taker, great. The first one is the world and all within it belongs to God. The world and all within it belongs to God. Everything. There's a great quote by Abraham Kuyper, my favorite Dutch theologians. I know you guys have your own favorite Dutch theologians. He's mine. He says this. In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ who alone is sovereign does not declare that is mine. Everything in this world, every aspect of it, is God's. All the field in the parable belongs to the master. And so he does with the land what he will do with the land. Second one, the devil is a real and terrible being. Okay. The devil is a real and terrible being. And, and, and this is just something, listen, I get, it makes us kind of uncomfortable, Right? That there's this guy, and because, right, we have all the pictures of the red guy with a tail and horns <laughs> running around in a weird Hollywood, ho Hollywood, Halloween, Halloween costume. <laughs> but he is real, and he's absolutely terrifying. It's, it's, it's not something where it's just, some people take this too seriously, and some people not seriously enough, right? He is a real and terrifying thing, and, and we must heed, and we don't have the time to do it today. We must heed everything the Bible talks about when it talks about there's a reality to the spiritual warfare in this world, and that there is an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour you, to tear you from God, okay? Three, uh, nothing happens that God does not know or see. Okay. Nothing happens in all of God's creation, nothing happens on the master's farm that he doesn't know about or see. So the master went and sowed his seed and then stepped back, but he knew the enemy was coming and was going to sow the bad seed, right? He was going to sow this bad seed. It was funny, this week I was talking to a couple of the pastors uh, down in the valley, and I said, hey man, you know, like, what are you thinking? We're talking through the text. And I was like, yeah man, and I was like, you got the good seed, uh, and then you, and I said, I said, you've got the bad weed. And, and he said that, and he goes, man, that is so Flagstaff. <laughs> and, and I said, what are you talking about? He says, you just, you're going to actually preach bad weed. And I said, no, 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 no. Bad seed, weeds. Okay, just... 
And I don't know why I told you that story. I just thought it was funny. But um, <laughs> the truth is, okay, the truth is God sees and knows everything that happens in his creation. And the implication of that is that he either actively, okay, actively sows it or causes it to occur or allows it to happen. Everything in this world. He either actively sows it or allows it to happen. It's, he, listen, could, could the master in the parable, could God, could he have just stepped in, stopped the enemy? Absolutely, he's God. But God in his infinite wisdom, infinite mercy, a lot of stuff that we were trying to camp on, his sovereignty, his goodness, all of that, that we camped on in, in throughout Romans, in all of that, he says, no, I, I'll allow it. And that's another thing we have, to, we have to wrestle with. Because if we're honest with ourselves, when I'm honest with myself and I'm talking to God, I said, God, I would have done it differently. Right? I, I, God, if I, I would have done this a little bit differently. I, I wouldn't have allowed this tragedy to happen. I stand in such a finite position, and so do you, okay? God sees everything in this world and either actively sows it or allows it to happen, okay? Fourth one. This one's a little, this one's buried in there, but I think it's so good. It's, it's not our job to judge, condemn, or tear down the weeds, okay? It's not your job to judge, condemn, or tear down the weeds, he goes to him, right? The, the servants say, okay, man, listen, you, I thought you sowed good seed, and he said, I did, but there's some weeds popping up. Should we go and remove those? Should we take care of your sin problem? Should we take care of the evil problem? Should we take care of the brokenness? And the master says, no. Leave that for me. We'll do that at the end when it's harvest time. It is not your job to judge, condemn, or tear down the weeds, okay? And yet, we do it all the time. Christians, church, we do it all the time. We look outside the church, we look at those that don't love Jesus and say, you should act like you love Jesus. Doesn't make sense. Not your job. Is it your job to test, not test, to see what they're doing, to have a compassionate and empathetic heart, to want more for them? Absolutely. Is it your job to present to them the gospel that they would be brought up into a greater story than the one they're in? Absolutely. But it's not your job to stand way back and throw stones at those who don't believe this Bible is true. And so knock it off. Grow in compassion, grow in empathy, grow in love, and then live it out that way, okay? And the, and the last implication, and it's a little bit of a transition for us, <clears throat> excuse me, is that it's God's job to judge, and he will, okay? It's God's job to judge, and he will. So in the meantime, before we get to verse 40, Think about how in this parable you have both the wheat and the weeds growing together in the same soil. The realities of this world that both Christian and non-Christian will exist in this world. It's not your 
job to tear down the weed, but it is your job, I'd say, to help cultivate the soil. Jeremiah 29 talks about the Israelites living outside of Babylon. When they're in captivity, when they're in trouble, when they're being bore down on by the Babylonians, And he says, why are you living on the outside of the city? Get into the city. Go live with those people. Work with those people. Know those people. Love those people. And seek the prosperity of the city. For in its prosperity, you will find your own. And so it is our job as those in the church. And if listen, that's not all of us in the room today. I'm not saying that. But if you're here and you're a Christian, it is your job to help cultivate the soil, to help love the city, to bless the city. And as the city prospers, you will prosper, and so will those outside. Until it's time for harvest, and in the meantime, and we'll get to this, pray that God's doing a work, because he probably is. Okay. Verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire... So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is popular in our culture today, again, to say, well, Jesus is only about love. That there isn't judgment. There isn't wrath. That's not who he is. Is and, and we said this at the start of the intro last week, that, that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else in the Bible. You know what's number two? Wrath and judgment. It trumps love, it trumps grace, it trumps mercy, it trumps all of that. It's kingdom of God, justice and wrath. Now, does that mean that he's not loving? No, he is far more loving than you would even dare to think he is. But he also is a fullness of the representation and image of God. And so he has justice and he has wrath. And he says this at the end of the age, when it's time for the harvest, two things will be taken up and burned and brought away. The first one is all causes of sin. So all the depravity, all the brokenness, all the pain, all the betrayal, all the hurt, all of these things that are the causes of all of the pain in this world, all of the sufferings, all of the trial in this all of that, all the causes of sin removed from his kingdom, burned away from his kingdom to purify his kingdom. And the second thing is all lawbreakers or sinners. All sinners to be removed from the kingdom. Okay. Again, harsh language. So Jesus teaching this to the disciples, teaching this to those around says, okay, here's what's going to happen at the end of the age, at the time of the harvest. There's these two realities we've already talked about. There's the good seed and there's the bad seed. And at the end of the age, I will call my angels to go. And they will bundle up all the causes of sin and all the lawbreakers, all the sinners, all those who are far from God. And then they will be placed into the furnace. Now, I'm not, we don't have the time to get into a whole theology about hell, okay? We, we just don't have it. And there's a lot of new things coming out, a lot of books, a lot of, 
And so we're going to do a theology pub on hell, but we'll probably wait probably until the fall when a lot of you guys come back, okay, to do that. But here's what we believe, and I think this text along with the rest of Scripture is pretty clear. That there is something, right? And it's eternal, and it's very, very bad. And it's purged and far from God. Okay? Where there's weeping and there's gnashing. It is not a place we want to be. Okay? And that's the reality of what we see. And so again, harsh language. Why? I think harsh language because God loves his creation. Draw near. I love you. Come to me. Believe. Faith. New life. Okay? I think that's what he's doing. Um, the difference, okay? Here's, here's a simple thing because um, you, you ask the question then, well, isn't everyone in this room a sinner? <laughs> isn't everyone in this, isn't everyone outside this room a sinner? Isn't that guy, that Asian up, up front, a sinner? Yes, absolutely. And everyone deserves this bad thing. Everyone deserves hell. Everyone deserves judgment. Everyone deserves wrath because of our own willing hate and disobedience for a holy and good God who only looked to create a perfect place for us. And yet, the only difference between the good seed and the bad seed, the only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, especially in the context of the kingdom of God, is citizenship. It's citizenship. There's many who live in America. There are some who are citizens, okay? They belong, they are citizens to this country, but we are a melting pot. Lots of people live here who are not citizens. We take that into this understanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has many people in it, but only has some citizens. Here's the good news. Citizenship is easy. Citizenship does not take a very long process of application and denial, usually another application and denial, and another application with lots of studying and all of these hoops to be able to become a citizen of America. And I'm married to a South African. I've been there. It's awful. She's still not one. We hate this country. You know, so just kidding. Love America. Um, the Patriots here. We've been there. It's tough. Listen, citizenship in the kingdom of God requires only one thing. There's no hoops. There's no circle. It's faith. It's Jesus. It's believe. That's it. That's all that's required. That's all that's required to say, man, am I a bad seed? Am I, am I not a citizen? Or am I a citizen? Am I his? Do I belong to the kingdom of God? Am I part of that people that make up of the kingdom of God? And it's not about being good enough. You don't have to fill out an application. It's not about coming to church every Sunday. It's not about how much you give. It's not how many Bible studies you go to. It's not how often you pray. Do you believe? Did Jesus, was he the son of God? Did he live the perfect life? Did he die the death you deserved, I deserved? And did he raise on the third day as we celebrate on Easter Sunday? If yes, 
Become a citizen. You're in. Believe. Faith alone. That's the good news in the midst of this. As amidst all this tough and harsh language, Jesus can say it because he knows that in a few years, he's walking towards your salvation. That as he shares these things, he's not just sharing them flippantly and saying, this is just going to be a sad reality for your life. He's saying, this, this could be a harsh reality for your life, but I'm going to go and do something about it. Our God, our Savior, was not content with just, this is how it will be. He lays his life down that others might have it. Okay, that's the gospel. Just believe. Okay. Um, if there's still some, and, and, and even me to a point, we struggle with this idea of judgment and God being a judge a little bit. I read this quote this week, and it was, it's a little bit longer, so I need, you to, I need you to track, I need you to hang. I know we're getting t- towards the end of this, so just kind of step in for a moment and try to follow along. It's, I think it just speaks to, in many ways, man, our, just, our, our pushback, our, I don't know. Okay, so let me read. It's by this guy, uh, Miroslav Volf, which I know, again, you guys absolutely love. Okay? One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword or judge. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant of us to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout all of history? Do we not think we're better right now? One could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to all of us. The fact is that in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human's violence. Most people who insist on God's non-violence or non-judgment cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges ultimately. Last part. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture of this topic in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover, and this is hard, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human and God's nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. In other words, so much of our pushback towards, God, would you judge? Would you have wrath? Would you condemn? Would you 
throw that into the furnace? Would you actually do that? Yes, he must. Otherwise, he's not worthy of our worship. So much of that proclivity of us to feel that way is because Wolf would say, man, we just, we haven't seen truly the depths of the pain and the brokenness in this world. We haven't seen sin at its ultimate form and either has the war zone, if we're honest. Sin is awful and must be destroyed. We sit in our contemporary, pretty quaint, simple lives, and that's fine. That's not not an indictment. It's just a reality. This is where we sit, and so then we, we, we have a problem with that God would judge ultimately. But he will, and he must. He must remove all lawbreakers. He must remove all causes of sin from his kingdom, and it's really because of what we see in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay. Verse 43. This moment of Jesus wrapping up this parable these are the realities of what, of what will happen to the bad seed, will happen to the good seed. Okay, when he purges the kingdom of God from all causes of sin, from all sinners, there will be a rejoicing in his kingdom. There will be the righteous of God because of Jesus rejoicing in his kingdom. No sorrow, no pain, no hurt, no sadness, no betrayal, no divorce, no single moms, no murder, no rape, no sexual harassment, all of it gone. And those who are citizens of his kingdom will sing and rejoice, probably dance, eat some good food, it's going to be fantastic. Jesus lands this parable by saying, this is what awaits those who would just come, those who are far, and just come, be near, and be healed. Faith, become a citizen. Here's what's awesome. Here's what's awesome, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. You don't, there's, there's no weed that becomes wheat, okay? Weeds don't just become wheat. It doesn't happen. You don't find that in nature. I, I tried to find it. It doesn't exist, okay? There's no weeds that become wheat, that become grain. The truth is, is that the whole time, you've just been wheat. You've been his, it just wasn't time for the harvest yet. It just wasn't time for him to come and say, this is the moment. Today, if you're here and you're a Christian, it's rejoice, it's sing, it's praise, it's prepare your heart for a celebration. If you're here and you're not, it doesn't mean that you're evil, it doesn't mean that you're a bad seed, It could just mean you need to believe. You need to have faith in Jesus, what he's accomplished on the cross. You need to believe in the gospel and realize this whole time, 
You've actually just been wheat waiting to be harvested. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, again, I, even this week, praying to you, God, I mean, I, I apologize for moments where I just still question and try and figure out how and why you do the things you do and think because of my 2014 Western America sensibilities no more than you. God, I, I just, I repent. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, guide me and guide us in your will and in your wisdom and in your truth that we would see in great depths, God, that it is good that you judge. And God, you did not just judge and do nothing about it, but that you judged and you will judge, but God, you've laid everything down and you've made citizenship as easy as it can be. God, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to keep even showing up here on Sunday. We need to believe. We need to trust you. We need to look at your cross and say, that was for me. That was, God, you were saving and redeeming all of creation, and I was part of that. God, I pray for, for us Christians in the room, God, would this move us God, towards thanksgiving and rejoicing, God, as we prepare for that party. God, would it also move us on mission? God, that we would love and be beacons of hope. God, that we would not seek to judge and condemn and tear down when we're so ignorant so many times ourselves, but that we would trust in you, our holy God, our Savior, to instruct, to make us wise, to make us compassionate, to love in the way, Christ, that you loved. And it was a love that was driven by the, the ethic of sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. And I pray for any of those here who just, they, 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 got, they came with a friend or they just don't believe or they, got, they just showed up, they thought it was a concert. God, would you, would you speak? God, we don't save, you save you harvest. It's your work. God, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah to you, Father. It's your name we pray. Amen.